Thank you so much, Kendi, and good morning, everyone. My name is Nathan Nelson. I'm the pastor of mission and outreach here at Bethany. It's a joy to be with you uh, sharing the message in this capacity today. I have been away for about a month uh, doing some extended travel and, and fulfilling some travel dreams with my wife, and so you'll hear a little bit about that shortly, um, but it's a joy to be back. We are in the second of five weeks uh, in a, a new series titled First John, Love God, Love Others. And each of the five weeks, we'll be looking at one of the different five chapters in the book. So this is week two, chapter two, Love God, Love Others from the book of First John. Now, last week, Pastor Scott sort of set up for us this notion of light and darkness, and uh, we were invited to sort of a, um, an intimate time of, of vulnerability where we acknowledged ways in which darkness or sin was manifesting in our lives, and then we were called forward to confess, and in, in that confession, experience freedom. This week, if, 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 if we discuss last week, light and darkness, this week I am inviting us, uh, I believe what First John chapter two is inviting us to do is to move towards the middle, towards the gray, if you will, and this theme of discernment. How are we to live in sort of this gray world in which we live uh, faithfully? So in your bulletin, you'll see an outline in which I've titled the message, A Forecast for Faithful Living, and we're going to look at three sort of distinct um, weather forecasts, if you will, that I think characterize a bit of our world and the invitation for us here in the second chapter of 1 John. So here they are. First, cloudy skies. Second, rough waters. And then three, sunshine ahead. And in a moment, we're going to pray. And, and before we do, I just I want, to, I want to say this from the outset, that friends, at this time in our history of the church, if you will, I think this word to us is perhaps uh, uh, more relevant, more important than ever. And this is why. Because historically, the church has been a place that's sort of divided evenly between good and bad. And, and Christians were called to be good, right? And now uh, we're very aware through the pandemic and other things that the world is murky, man, and, and we need wisdom to discern how are we to be faithful in the midst of this murky world. People out there don't want to hear from us in here, this is good, this is bad. If you want in, you know, do this thing, do, clean your life up just the right way and you can be a part of our Christian club. That's not the future of the church. Amen? We need, so we need wisdom to discern how are we to live as faithful people in the midst of a world, light, dark, super gray, everything in between. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this invitation to be a part of your good story in the world. Lord, we long to be a part of a good story and it's so easy to disqualify ourselves for sure and others based on this sin or this thing that we do or say or believe that isn't quite right. Lord, we don't want to minimize those things. We want to acknowledge, God, that, that we do believe in your good story in the world and that we all have a role to play. Ourselves, people the furthest from your church, God, we're all agents in your redemption story in the world. So call us back, we pray, to a clear vision 
of the role that we have to play in that story. Towards that end, we pray in your name. Amen. So there's this sort of myth in society that uh, light is good and darkness is bad. And, and, and if this is true, I think we're in trouble in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> right? It's gray all the time. We get it. Let me show you um, another example here on the screen. You'll see in, in popular culture, we have sort of um, villainized the dark. Have we not? Here is Darth Vader, one of my favorite characters of all time. And then, and then we've really, I mean, the, the rainbow of color has been completely co-opted by characters such as Care Bears and unicorns jumping over rainbows, right? Like, that's kind of, we've minimized it to that. And, and so we say, you know, uh, we have to defeat the dark and, 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 and move towards the light. Hear me. God is light. God defeats evil. Hard stop. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes? And make no mistake, though that is true, we have to be careful not to villainize others due to our perception of what constitutes darkness. We have to be careful not to villainize others due to our perception of what constitutes darkness. And so this is where 1 John brings us. He brings up these important questions of how it is that we are supposed to, quote, walk in the light in a world in which darkness and light are swirling around all the time. And invites us to consider together the pathway forward is one of discernment in which we can be people with the capacity to be the full love, the full presence, the full hope of Christ right in the midst of it all. And so, if the world is a pie, okay, this is my pie here. Looks good, huh? Um, we cannot cleanly divide it 50% light, 50% dark. 50% good, 50% bad. If you live in that world, I'd love to hear about it. You might need medication. <laughs> this is a, if this is the world pie, we have a, 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 I would like to suggest that we have this, sort of this thin slice over here that, man, it's light. And then we have this thin slice over here that, that yes, is, is truly dark. And everything in between, gray. Different shades of gray, okay? I had someone say this morning that my sermon should be titled 50 Shades of Gray. I refute that. <laughs> that is not funny. Get it out. <laughs> kind of is funny. And so, if it's not clear already, if someone comes up to you and they say, hey, how was your day? And you're like, good. No, it wasn't. I don't care if it was your best day. How was your day? There were good parts and there were probably some bad parts. This is the world we live in, is it not? And so the question is, how are we to live faithfully in the midst? This brings us to our first point. Cloudy skies from black and white thinking to gray being. In John's first epistle, he's writing to a church community. I want you to hear that's important. He's writing to a community. These instructions are not just for us as individuals, but for us with communal application in mind. So likely the community is in Ephesus, 
And they're dealing with this sort of um, what we'll call opponents, this group of opponents, uh, early Gnostics, who are refuting the truth that Jesus was both God and human. So the author of 1 John is sort of saying to them, you know, how are you to know if someone is is, is, is sort of seeking to lead you astray if they've, if they've deviated from the true belief that we've inherited that Jesus is in fact the saving Christ of God and, the, uh, and those that, that do ascribe to those beliefs. How do we discern between them? Opponent, not opponent. So we read 1 John chapters 2, verses four to six. Here's, here's John's answer. Whoever says I have come to know him but does not obey his commandments is a liar, and in such a person the truth does not exist. But whoever uh, obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk in the same way as he walked. So, how are we to know? Two things. One, those who abide in Christ. Second, those who walk as he walked. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were given a litmus test to know like, if you're, if you're a good person or a bad person, I don't want that to be my metric because that is tough, man. Like, okay, do you, Kendi, abide in Christ? And do you, uh, 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 what's the second one? Walk just as Jesus walked? I think so, but like, I only, I see you quite a bit. Kendi's my boss. I think so, but I don't know what you're doing with the rest of your time, right? So practically speaking, people in your lives, it's like, how do you know? How do you know who's in and who's not? Who's an opponent and who's not? I think that's the point. John is inviting us to consider the fact that it's not as simple as saying, yeah, good, bad. I associate with this person, not with this person. With this thing, not with that thing. There's some things that are clear cut, but a whole lot that isn't. So, how do we know? How do we discern light and darkness? And critically, how are we to live as people walking in the light amidst this gray, overcast, Pacific Northwest reality that we live in? And let me be clear. Discernment matters, and good and evil do exist. Absolutely. Moral relativism or sort of doing what feels good to you and yours, like I'll do me, you do you, as long as we don't hurt each other, it's all good. That is not the way forward for John. Not at all. In just a few verses, John is going to get very concerned with the importance of differentiating between good and evil, between truth and its opponents. And given that, what I want to suggest to us today is that John is inviting us to a different question. Not what or who is good or bad, but how are we to be amidst a world characterized by light and darkness, good and evil, positive and negative, and everything in between? How are we to be in the midst of it? Unfortunately, I think the church has got this wrong all too often throughout history. We've concerned ourselves more with conforming people to a list of to-dos and don't-dos than a creator's curiosity 
embodying love and service to another. We're seeing this continue to play out in ethical debates and political wars today, inside and outside the church, for sure. Last week, you and I heard Pastor Scott refer to this centered set theology versus a bounded set theology. To remind us, a centered set theology is this notion that if Christ is at the center, everyone in the world exists in some level of proximity to Christ. And the things that we do or don't do or that happen to us sort of move us closer or further away from Christ. And here at Bethany, we hold that theology of a centered set Christianity really near and dear. And this sort of comes in contrast to a bounded set theology. A bounded set theology suggests that uh, there's Jesus and the box around Jesus. And there's the people who are in the box and there's people who are out. And the problem with this way of thinking is that throughout history, we've defined differently what constitutes that box. And we get ourselves in trouble when we do that. So for John, friends, this is important. Walking in the light is not a matter of discerning who is in or who is out, but rather walking in the light means taking steps closer to Jesus over time, further and further in proximity to the Christ who is our savior. So again, not trying to draw lines between good and bad, in and out, sort of insulating ourselves from darkness, if you will. This is not the Christian way of life. But oftentimes we kind of make it up to be. We start listening to more Christian music, you know, because we're, we're, doing, we're doing good in our walk, right? More Christian music, more Christian friends, more Bible studies. And we start to think to ourselves like, yeah, I'm nailing it. But the reality is that when we insulate ourselves from the quote secular world around us, we take ourselves out of the game. And the game here is the redemption story of God in the world, in and through all places and all people all the time. And so, instead of insulating ourselves, we're invited to abide, abide in Christ, become proximate with Jesus, intimate with our Lord. And that's what gives us the capacity to engage lovingly, just as Christ did, with the whole world around us, embodying the hope and presence of eternal life alive in us. This is the goal. This is the game. Amen? Verses five and six. Take another look with me. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. Well, how did Jesus walk? Thanks for asking. This brings us to our second point. Rough waters, present in the midst. I alluded at the beginning that my wife and I just got back from this extended season of travel. Um, when I first met my wife at SPU, um, we were young and dumb. Now we're just a little bit less young and maybe a little bit less dumb. Um, but uh, she had this aspiration, if you will. She had this Pinterest board that I, I learned about where she had different goals in her life. And one of those goals was to travel to all seven continents by the time she was 30. And so I, if you know a little bit about my story, have traveled and lived all over the world, and this is near and dear to who I am. And so I thought, challenge accepted. All seven continents by the time she's 30. Let's do this. Well, story goes on. We get married. 
and we did a, we've done a lot of travel together. Much of it we've done through the church here at Bethany, and it's, it's been good. And there's one continent, that, that pesky last continent, that kept coming up. Any guesses? Antarctica. You got it. How the heck do you get to Antarctica? That was the question. So this was right before the pandemic. We asked that question of Google. We just literally Googled it. And we looked, and like everything that came up first was just totally absurd. Like there's no way we're gonna be able to pay for this. My wife's a teacher, I'm a pastor. That's a thing. So like, okay. Um, and we dug a little deeper and we found there's like the cheapest way you can go where you, you get to fly into Antarctica, get off the plane, touch it one day, and then you take a boat back. That's it. So we're like, good, mission accomplished, let's do it. Booked it. That alone was expensive. So then as the pandemic hits and kind of wears on, every year we get this note from the travel agency, like postponed again, but hey, you know, stick with us, keep your deposit, we're gonna upgrade your trip. So we kind of get these upgrades. And honestly, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to what the upgrades were. Well, let me tell you what the upgrades constituted. <laughs> 11 day expedition in Antarctica, here's the catch. You gotta go on a boat both directions. If you don't know this, to get between the southern tip of South America and the Antarctic Peninsula, you have to cross something called, just a little something, called the Drake Passage, which is the roughest waters in all of the planet. I don't know about you, I get motion sick. (laughs) So motion sick. I literally get motion sick driving my own car. How pathetic is that? (laughs) This is not, I am not making that up. So, like, I've got ginger, I'm bathing in ginger, like, that's supposed to help with motion sickness. Um, we get up, and, and here's the other deal. You can take these uh, extravagant cruises to Antarctica. Giant boats, like city on the water. We could not afford that. So we're walking down the dock on the way to our boat. And like, we'd seen some pictures of what it looked like. But it was kind of hard to, to tell, like what the sizes or whatever. So we're walking and we're like, that, that can't, surely that's not it. That's too big. And then we're looking over here. No, that can't be it. And, we get, and we're like, we're running out of boats here. Where is our boat? And I have video evidence of this. Um, I'm going to save time by not showing it. But um, I literally said to Macy, babe, look, that's cool. There's a tugboat in front of that cruise ship. That was our boat. And that's what we crossed the big passage in. So we get in this relatively small vessel. And uh, we get aboard. They're orienting us. We're getting excited. I am so freaking out. Like, how am I going to do this, right? Is my ginger going to work? And the, this captain, the captain comes out and, you know, introduces himself and whatnot. He's this suave sort of Argentinian man, like gravelly voice. And he says, I'm not going to lie to you. The weather on the Drake is not good. <laughs> and I'm just like, kill me now. You get, like, we'd already taken off. There was no going back. I'm in trouble. So then the doctor comes out and he's got this like cup with handwritten scotch taped on the side, seasickness pills. And in it is just full of white pills. And he just comes around, you know, take these and he's like, what the heck is this? We're in international waters now. Like, I don't know what's going on. So we take the pills and he's like, take these every 12 hours. Why am I telling you about my seasickness experience? Well, the next 48 hours... I'm in my bedroom, hauled up in this ship. The boat is literally like, right? Even doing that, I'm like, I'm sick. Um, 
And we're taking these white pills and they are like make you extra drowsy, but I survived. I didn't get sick one time. Um, for sure got dizzy and all that stuff, but no, it was, it was, it was pretty good. But, as, but, but in order to, to make it, like I had to just lay in bed and stare at the ceiling. So I'm laying in bed, I'm staring at the ceiling, holding on to everything inside of me to not like throw up. And it occurs to me, I know about a guy who was in the hull of a ship. Any guesses? Jesus. It's, come on, that's always the answer in church. Jesus, right? There's this story we have in scripture, right? Of Jesus being in the hall of a ship and the, and, and the disciples are all worried about things. And, and, and what is Jesus doing in the midst of these turbulent waters? He's sleeping. So I'm thinking a lot about that. For two days straight, this image of Jesus comes back to me. And I've thought about it in theoretical terms, but this is like, I am literally experiencing it and praying for whatever he had for myself, right? And I couldn't help but think that that literally, as I'm watching out the porthole in our room and I'm seeing all sky, all water, right? Like these turbulent waters are so characteristic of the world around us. So characteristic of the world around us. Darkness and light swirling around together, causing disruption, causing uncertainty, causing danger, causing sickness. And even in the midst of that, there's this sort of beauty, this magnificence at how grand, how vast the ocean is. And it, I, it occurred to me, this was an opportunity to consider if this is illustrative of our world, how are we supposed to make it? How are we supposed to cross the drake, if you will? And Jesus, how is he walking or, or quite literally sleeping amidst this reality? He was at peace, posture of rest. He embodied shalom. And this is what I was challenged with and what I wanna bring to us today. So it is with us. We may not always have the seasickness pills that we need, but Jesus promises to give us the capacity to exist, not just to make it through, to endure, but to actually be the source and presence of the hope for all of eternity right in the midst of the storm. Not to be blinded by the darkness of our world, nor the bright lights, if you will, that would seek to sort of draw us to another narrative, but we are to be people who see and hear and receive the word of God to us right in the midst of what's going on around us. To, be the, to have the capacity to embody the truth of Christ in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Amen? Will you look with me at uh, verses 11 and 15 through 17? But whoever hates a brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know the way to go, because the darkness has brought on blindness. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away. But those who do the will of God abide forever. Friends, Christians have taken these verses to suggest that anything in the world is, quote, 
bad. And thus we should shun it and sort of live exclusively Christian lives until uh, we're able to reach that which is only really and truly good, heaven. But this, friends, is Gnosticism. It's actually the very first, uh, 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 the, very, the very thing, the very group whom the author of 1 John is seeking to refute. First and, century, and second century Gnostics, heresy that, are, that constitute these opponents of the church at the time. They were seeking to sort of, uh, 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 sort of um, enculturate this notion of a cosmological dualism, if you will, in which material creation is seen as evil and only the spiritual realm consists of good. Now, in the Pacific Northwest, I think we're sort of, especially as Christians, we think we're beyond this. Right? We look at the beauty around us and the cascades and, and the evergreen forests, you know, and we think, we get it. God is in creation. Many of us, you know, love the wilderness ministry here at Bethany. It's a way that we connect with God. So we say, you know, we're beyond that. Or the others of us, we say, you know, we get it. Like our faith and work initiative here at Bethany that helps us to, to understand that anything that you do, for-profit, non-profit industry, everything alike, is actually, you know, meant to be part of God's utilizing you as an instrument of his kingdom. It's true. So we say, you know, maybe we're beyond this dualistic way of thinking. But what I want to suggest to his friends is that actually, if we take a hard look at ourselves, we've created a different kind of dualism in our faith. And that manifests in the way that we see and interact with others particularly the, quote, other, whoever that may be for you in your life. So consciously or not, we have created for ourselves sort of this, this group of ins and this group of outs. You may say in, in a theoretical sense, oh, God loves them, but you yourself, you disassociate, right? Right? It's easier to interact with people who look like me, sound like me, think like me, do the same kind of things that I do in my free time. And we disconnect ourselves from others. At its worst, we as Christians create sort of a social club, if you will, and we call it the church, and we say, come, everyone, come on in. But what we're really saying in our actions is, if you don't look like us, sound like us, believe like us, act like us, then really, there's no home for you here right? This is a problem. All too often, we insulate ourselves from the true reality of the people around us. Perhaps it can be out of a fear of the particular darkness that we perceive in another, or in a place that they occupy. Or maybe it's our own selfishness, our own judgment of another. But friends, don't miss this. Ironically, there is a great cost to this way of living. When we live into this dualism, if you will, in our faith, between ourselves and another, we insulate ourselves and become irrelevant to Christ's redemption story in the world. You want to be a part of Christ's redemption story in the world? I do. You got to engage with everyone. We have to have the capacity to engage with all people in all places at all times. 
Rather than draw lines between, quote, good and bad people, the right and wrong, we instead need to ask God to mobilize us as agents of reconciliation and hope in a world that desperately needs it. Amen? In our family relationships, in our friend groups, with our coworkers, in our classmates, in our neighborhoods, in our dormitories, in our racially and socioeconomically divided city, there is way too much at stake, friends, for us to resign ourselves to our Christian bubbles or to our ways of thinking, to our homogenous friend groups, to our own class. There's too much at stake. And I would argue the fate of the church in our lifetime and for the next generation is at stake. We have to be people with the capacity to engage. Now, there's this interesting thing about oceans, as I was rocking in one, um, that uh, I have since called to mind, and that is the, the, the saltiness of the ocean. Seawater contains about 3.5% salt. And there might be some scientists in the room who, who, who can put this in better terms than I can, but let me try to illustrate the importance of that for you. Together with temperature, the salinity of, of the oceans uh, constitute the density of seawater, determining whether water will float or sink. So salinity has a major effect on the flow of deep ocean currents that move heat from the tropics to the poles, and ultimately, this saltiness of the ocean determines the climate of our planet. Isn't that fascinating? The saltiness of the ocean dictates the conditions of our entire planet. And Jesus says, friends, so it is with you as believers. Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth. Mark 9.50, salt is good. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Friends, we're called to be salt, are we not? Salt and the ocean of our world that seasons it and sustains it. Is that the story of the church we're seeing playing out around society? It can be. For that reason, we must be in relationship with people around us, not distancing ourselves from those who don't think like us or believe like us, but being integrated into the mix so that like salt in the dough, we can bring out the flavor of the kingdom of God with whomever and wherever God places us. This is the invitation. And that brings us to our final point for this morning, sunshine ahead and invitation to abide. You might be thinking, uh, gee, that sounds actually pretty nice. I can relax and not just like listen to Christian music exclusively. It's not, Christian music is good, right? But there's a lot of other good music out there. It's okay. And and those kinds of things, right? I, I, I first started receiving this notion of kind of uh, engage the culture, change the world when I was at SPU. That's their mission statement. Then here at Bethany, Pastor Richard is, is just uh, sort of so passionate about the notion that culture is a means of illustrating the full breadth of the beauty of God rather than something to be feared or rejected. Friends, I hope it's relaxing to you to think about not having to be so concerned with this is good and this is bad, but that we can sort of imagine for ourselves a redemption story for it all and that we're called to be part of that. Verses 27 and 28 say this, 
for, uh, as for you, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, so you do not need anyone to teach you. But as, as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. We just finished a short two-week series from Pastor Richard in which he invited us to consider habits for wholeness. And these are sort of inhaling and exhaling practices that we can uh, uh, see illustrated in scripture and then kind of throughout Christian tradition, well-founded practices that allow us to do this thing, to abide. Right? These, these things like inhaling um, solitude and, and, and study of scripture and Sabbath allow us to exhale in service and generosity to the world around us. And the sort of ecosystem of our faith of inhaling and exhaling, abiding in the spirit is what I wanna suggest, friends, what makes us people with the capacity to do this thing, to embody the presence of Christ with whomever and wherever God leads us. We have to be people who abide. So remember this bounded versus centered set theology, abiding in Christ and using these tools, these habits for wholeness, if you will, what they do is they move us closer to Christ, the life of Christ at the center. And they equip us to be people who can discern, who can discern between good and evil in a given situation. And over time, as we abide, we gain the capacity to engage more fully with both light and darkness as agents of God's reconciliation in the world. Not blinded by darkness, but blinded by sin or, or even the bright lights of prestige and, and personal gain, selfish ambition, but as people who with the lens of Christ can see the truth and embody hope. So if we're to be people walking in the light, friends, if we're to be salt in the ocean, so to speak, we have to abide. And there's uh, two important figures in scripture that did this. Jesus, of course, who hung out with people like a religious elites, the Pharisees, all the way down to prostitutes and tax collectors and things like that. Jesus kind of embodied this notion of being in connection with the Father. He would retreat and he would spend time with the Lord and then that, with God and that gave him the capacity to then go and, and be that presence of hope a vessel of God's love in the world around him, all kinds of different people and contexts. The same was true of Paul. Paul famously writes in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, this notion of being Jews to the Jews and Gentiles to the Gentiles. Paul says, I, I'm under the law for those that are part of the law, but I'm also not bound by the law to the extent that I can engage with other people and win people for the gospel, may it be so. And there's a, there's a more contemporary figure, in addition to Jesus and Paul, uh, who's not in scripture, though I love his writings and uphold them very highly. And this gentleman is by the name of Henry Nouwen. If you know, uh, we heard a little bit about Henry Nouwen from Pastor Scott last week. And um, he's long been one of my favorite theologians. He uh, was a Catholic priest and taught at um, kind of Ivy League um, seminary and very, very smart man. And uh, if, if you were to imagine, like, what, what, what does success in the Christian life look like? Henry Nouwen, okay? But towards the end of Henry Nouwen's life, if you know anything about me, you'll see why, you'll know why this is so, so cool to me. He uh, 
finish his life by traveling around town with a flying trapeze troupe in the circus. And if you don't know, my wife and I do flying trapeze. So he's already one of my like Christian saint figures and, then, and, and this just put it over the top for me. So um, Henry Nouwen finishes uh, his, his life wrestling with how he would write a book about his experience in the circus for a non-Christian audience. It would be his first book that he wanted to write for a non-Christian audience. And uh, I just love this. His struggle so beautifully illustrates this thing that we're talking about today. So I'm gonna read to you just a couple quotes from this. Um, Here we go with the first. He's talking about his time on the road. And you can imagine, he's an older guy at this point. And uh, he's, he's out there on the road with these circus artists. He's traveling around in a camper. And this is what he writes. This morning, I celebrated the Eucharist by myself in the camper. This was the third time during my stay in the circus. I thought about inviting someone to be with me, but realized that it's better to remain, quote, hidden. The idea of being a priest for the people in the circus has intrigued me. But the longer I'm here, the more I become convinced that only after a long hidden life here could any type of ministry emerge. The most religious people in the circus seem to be the Muslims from Morocco. I hear them sing at times, and it sounds as though they are praying. Of any Christian form of prayer or worship, however, I see no sign. But Rodley, and this is the leader of the troop, Rodley's kindness, hospitality, support, and generosity are such a gift to me that it's obvious that I have much more to receive than to give at this time. Right now it appears that I should live here a long time, get to know everybody in a simple and undemanding way, and then it would gradually become clear what ministry would mean. You see, for now, and living faithfully amongst those in the circus did not mean serving them the Eucharist or converting them, so to speak. It did not mean creating his own Christian circus, It meant for him continuing to abide, taking the Eucharist himself. And importantly, it meant a two-way street whereby he would love and be loved by others. It meant being salt right in the midst of the gray skies and turbulent waters of circus life. And let me tell you, friends, from my personal experience, oh, are the skies gray and oh, are the waters turbulent. So why did he do it? And honestly, I can tell you, this is the same reason that I do it. Because here he found sunshine unlike anywhere he'd seen it before. This is what he goes on to write. This is the first, uh, his reflection on the first time he witnessed the flying trapeze act. The 10 minutes that followed somehow gave me a glimpse of a world that had eluded me so far. A world of discipline and freedom, diversity and harmony, Risk and safety, individuality and community, and most of all, flying and catching. The trapeze act gave rise to a desire in me that no other art form could evoke. The desire to belong to a community of love that can break through the boundaries of ordinariness. Friends, do you want to belong to a community of love that breaks through the boundaries of ordinariness? I absolutely do. But I'm telling you, the pathway forward is not through a Christian club. 
It's through a church that is murky and gray and willing to let any and everybody in and together as we love and serve and be loved and be served that we will discover this beauty. This is a beauty I think that's characteristic of the kingdom of God itself and it's why now and at the end of his life, an old man asked if he could travel around with a flying trapeze group around with the circus. There's, some, there's beauty there. So it is with us, friends. And so as we close and I invite the band back up, this is the question I would like us to consider by way of response. Where do you wanna see the light shine? Where do you feel God is calling you to be a part of a community of love that breaks through the ordinariness of your life? Not so that you can, you know, tally up the score of how many people you've converted or some silliness like that. That's God's job. But so that you can look back and you can say, you know what? I tasted the kingdom because I experienced the full breadth of God's creation on display in authentic and meaningful ways. And I sought to be faithful in the midst of that. Where is God calling you to be a part of experiencing the light shine? Let's reflect on that as we worship now.